Amen. Can we hurry up here? Have you ever asked that question or felt that way? Like, today, Junior, let's go. Let's, let's get through this. Sometimes those moments, it's like when the chaos hits, um, when we go through a painful experience, or it's even sometimes when busyness consumes, it feels like, it's, can this just be a season of life? Like, can we get through it? Um, it's just difficult not to hurry in those moments. Rushing past possible moments, memories, and really opportunities, even the difficult ones, often mean that we are trusting in our perceptions rather than God's promises. Really, this holiday season, what we've tried to center our soul on is this idea of slowing down and being with God because Emmanuel means God with us. And so over the last several weeks, whether this is your first time hearing, jumping into this series, or you've been with us for the whole time, we've tried to help you walk with the Lord and slow down and be moved by faith and not by sight through reviewing the inconveniences and the stories surrounding the incarnation. As even that song was sung, This first Christmas night was a holy night, but it was probably not silent. It likely wasn't calm after walking 100 miles by Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, arriving in an overcrowded town, there was a wife in advanced labor, only to find there was no place for them in the inn. We're completely full. We can't take another person. I've been turning others away too, the innkeeper wearily said with his gruff voice, slightly irritated and overtired. Please, my wife is about to give birth. We'll take anything with a little privacy, pleaded Joseph. Compassion, exasperation mixed in the fatigued innkeeper's eyes. His tired hand rubbed over his head. Look, I would give you your own quarters, but we've already given them to others. People are in every nook and cranny. There is no room, especially to have a baby. Running on adrenaline, now Joseph realized he had felt so confident back in Nazareth. There was no morphing, just into some, just finding something to do. He, he just wanted to, to, to move, to do, to act, and he was looking at the innkeeper with some sort of urgency, hoping that he would change his mind, hoping that the confidence would, would come back as he was overcome with some level of anxiety. He wanted to get back to that sense of self. See, God had sent an angel to Mary and to him. God had caused Mary to get pregnant. God had turned the steam of mighty Augustus's heart so that the Messianic prophecy about Bethlehem would be fulfilled, and they were here. Surely God would provide for their needs when they arrived. After all, this child was God's son. God, do something, echoed in his mind. 
So now Joseph was growing desperate. Bethlehem was overrun with people. The Roman census got the Messiah to Bethlehem, but it was left him no place to lay his head. So he looked with desperate eyes to the innkeeper. Are there other inns here? No. Bethlehem can't keep two inns in business, usually. You don't have family close by with a half-hearted hope, plead, begged, or questioned the, the innkeeper. Mary cried out in pain in the background. Nearly frantic, Joseph spared his words that he wanted to say back to the innkeeper. Instead, he said, no, please. Again, is there anyone who could take us in? Do you know anyone? Everyone I know is already housing guests. In his mind, please, God, please, echoed again, we need a place. Give us a room. Send us your angel. Do something. There, two men stood in a doorway, looking at each other, waiting for the other to make a move. There was a tense five seconds. Joseph choked out again, please, we will take anything. At a moment, a woman appeared behind the innkeeper and said, we do have a stable in the back. The innkeeper turned to his wife, Rachel. Hey, she's, there's a woman here about to give birth. Surely that's not an option. We can't put her in a stable. I heard, Rachel replied, but leaving her in the street would be worse, Jacob. I'll get some blankets and some clean straw. She looked at Joseph. I'll meet you in the back. I can help with the birth too. She began to move, then stopped. What's your wife's name? Mary. Tell Mary it will be okay. God will help her. God will help you. With a sigh of relief, thank you, Joseph said. Thank you, God. Relief collided with regret inside him as he turned to Mary. For Rachel's help was a gift. But a stable? That's the best he could provide for his trusting wife and this holy child? How could God's son be born in a stable? Mary cried out again, Joseph! No more time. With gentle swiftness, Joseph picked up Mary and carried her towards the back of the inn. Mary's breathing was labored. They have a room? Jo Joseph spelt, felt a stab of shame. The only thing left is the stable. But I think it'll be okay. We'll make it clean. The innkeeper's wife is going to help us. God is providing. Mary knew. Thank you, God, she whispered. And then squeezed Joseph's neck as another pain seized her 
And she began to push the light further into the world. I think if you and I were in that situation, thinking about the birth of God's son, a stable is not where we would have likely wanted to see God come into the world. Stable is likely not where Joseph wanted to be that night. It held no romance for him. He was only there out of desperation. But the stable was not about Joseph or Mary. It was about the Son of God making himself nothing. He had, to come, he had come to humble himself to unfathomable depths. So he borrowed a stable for his birth. Later, after an excruciating death to provide a remedy for our sins, he would borrow a tomb. But Joseph likely didn't grasp any of that in Bethlehem. And the mayhem of the moment, all he knew was the best he could do for Mary and Messiah was a stable full of real and ritual uncleanliness. And to battle fear and shame, all he could have done was trust that God somehow would have provided or could have provided differently. But God had some mysterious purpose in this perceived humiliation. And that is a Christmas word to us. That to the humble and to the lowly, to the humiliation, when we want to be filled with pride and prestige and pomp and circumstance, God moved into the world, into the neighborhood, at the bottom. There are times when seeking to follow God faithfully, we find ourselves in desperate moments, forced to a place we would not choose to go, being humbled, being called out, being in need, not knowing what to do, wishing we had an answer and we're at our wits end, we're at the end of our rope, at the end of our resources, and we wish we had a way forward. And we're not sure or can see how to go. And maybe we've tried. Maybe we're trying again. And it seems that when we put that effort out there, it just makes things worse. We're nervous to reach out and get rejected. To apologize because it might feel awkward. Forgiving knowing that we'd have to stomach a level of pain. Maybe it's even practicing self-control when the inner monster rages and have to withhold those backhanded comments that so easily slip out of our mouth. When we're desperate, when we're frustrated, when we're full, when our life's full, sometimes we don't like the frustration We wish there was another way, and we cry out, whether verbally or maybe it's in our inner mind, and we begin to realize that we're desperate for a change. We're desperate for something different, maybe for ourselves or even for someone else. 
But I think it's in those moments we must remember that our lives and our circumstances are not ultimately about us. For followers of Jesus, we are the support character in our own lives. Our circumstances provide opportunity for the great hero to shine, for the Messiah to rescue, for Jesus Christ to be expressed in our life. For followers of Jesus, it is not our own status, it is not our own significance that we should depend on. It's not even the security that we can create for ourselves. It's the only the security and the significance that comes through an attachment, through a relationship with Jesus Christ and what that means for us. The Christmas word for us is that wherever we find ourselves in, whether we feel like we have it all together or life's falling apart, that God moves towards us whether we feel like we need it or not. Because there will always be moments where we do need it. Where we need a gentle or kind reminder that it's God that's with us. See, the Father has purposes for us in our hardships that extend far beyond us. What often appear like misfortunes in the moment later may prove to be means of great mercies. In your place of desperation... It may be that what you need most is not more speed, more power, more strength, more knowledge, but less hurry, but more presence so that you can be reminded that the God we serve is a two-mile-an-hour God who walks with us at the speed that we need. See, God chooses stables of desperation as a birthplace for his overwhelming love to shine through. And may we let him love us in those moments. See, love can be demonstrated in a myriad of ways. For people feel and receive love differently. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and return speaks to all our need for love. We need to be loved. We need to receive love. And a lot of the pain that comes out of our life that we both cause and that we perceive in the world is failure to receive God's love. Let that change and transform our hearts so that we can be known that we are lovable and therefore can love others well. See, to be loved is first to be known by God, to, be, to receive him, to know that Jesus, in Jesus' coming, he demonstrates a pursuing affection for you, that he has a purposeful favor and a persistent kindness, that he sees you and has not abandoned you. So when you are desperate, to be reminded that in this moment you are totally and completely loved. That in your desperate moments, that you are not here because God is mad at you, or he is upset with you, or he is looking down as a disapproving father, but rather to be known that you are loved, and for you in your situation to perfectly receive and respond to that love. 
See, and oftentimes then in our desperation, in our desperate moments, we in fact turn to lesser loves because we don't trust that his love will sustain, that God has in mind what's best for us. And remember, if we are a support character in our own stories, then sometimes our situation and our scenario is to receive and respond to that love in that circumstance so others can see God's love. There, there is a God who moves towards people. Few things illustrate the distortions of lesser loves that result from unhealthy fixations better than J.R.R. Tolkien's character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. For those of you who don't know, earlier in his life, Gollum is pictured as a happy little hobbit, enjoying leisure and laughter and friendship with his fellow hobbits. But all of that changes on the fateful day he gets a hold of the One Ring. Or to say it more accurately, the day the one ring gets a hold of him. Gollum becomes so enamored with the ring that he forsakes everything. His home, his friends, his safety, even his very life. He becomes distorted, creepy, gross in order to keep the ring safe and secure in his own possession. The ring draws him in, casts a spell on him, and occupies all of his attention and affections. It becomes his one true love, his precious. We wants it. We needs it. Gollum hisses. Must have precious. So bright, so beautiful. Ah, precious. But tragically, this precious that so captured Gollum's imaginations and affections ends up stripping him of everything that is truly precious in his life. It twists him bodily, ravaging him outwardly, and does so inwardly. And like a gulp of sweet-tasting poison, his precious eventually ruins him. Like Tolkien's Gollum, we all gravitate towards a precious of some kind. We are, as the old hymn reminds us, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, or we want to love, or hope to love, or long to love well. And as a result, we will begin consciously or unconsciously to hiss around our custom-made, personalized versions of the ring. For we wants it, we needs it, we must have our precious. So bright, so beautiful. So what might be our precious? Take some introspection. That's not a comfortable thing. It's not a pleasant thing to search our own souls, our own hearts and minds, to become aware of a blind spot. And oftentimes, we rush past things in life, circumstances, moments, opportunities to truly reflect on what we value most. We'd rather distract ourselves. We'd rather hurry through the unpleasantness. We'd rather have someone else just tell me what to do 
so we don't have to think about it or consider what do I love most and how might this lesser love truly impact the rest of my life? I think whatever we spend, whatever we regularly spend the most amount of money with the least amount of effort reveals our truest and deepest loves. Where our treasure is, Jesus tells us there, your heart will be also. Again, it's not necessarily what you spend the most amount of money on, but it's the most amount of money with the least amount of effort. Because we want it, we needs it, my family will deal with it, we'll come up with the money later, or maybe some other option. Another way we recognize what really captures our affections, what really drives our lives, what we really believe deep down will save us is to look at what we invest our mind share in. Several questions can help us self-diagnose. What do I think about the most? When you have a down moment, what's the first thing that comes to mind? When you start a new conversation with someone, What's the quickest and first thing that you're eager to talk about? What preoccupies your imagination when you have nothing else competing for your attention? Maybe better yet, what keeps you awake late at night when that mind is racing? What causes you the most worry? What's the worst case scenario do you tend to dwell on regularly? Think as you consider those questions, sometimes they might reveal what or who is most important to us as well as what or who we are depending on to be our surrogate Jesus. As Archbishop William Temple once said, our religion is defined by what we do with our solitude. Some of us don't want to deal with that, so we refuse to be by ourselves. Or let our minds wander to that. But I think we can also look at what triggers our anxieties. For what am I willing to frantically tire myself out just to have? What makes me most afraid of losing control? What if I lost it would rob me of a desire to face the day or even to live? The answers to those questions also expose expose our true precious. In the same way our anxieties reveal our functional treasures, so does our happiness. What gives us the most contentment? What would cause me to express my loudest hip, hip, hooray? What if I were to, if I were to be able to have something or keep it? What caused me to preach it's my own soul. Soul, you have stored up for yourself blanks. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. Life is good because you have this. And some of those things aren't bad things. There's sometimes soul, things that we need in our relational lives, in our everyday lives. But when good things become ultimate things, they will always be a lesser savior. And we will intend always put ourselves into slavery and be bound to something that's a terrible master. 
And maybe a final indicator of our true precious is the nature of our moral compromise. What parts of the Bible am I most prone to avoid? Where, when Jesus or Moses or Paul or David or Peter speak, am I most prone to look the other way or to explain away what I have read? We always got another piece of context or another piece of information that, well, life is just different now. And what areas of my life am I most willing to say yes to sin and no to God and his word? And what ways am I most prone to divert the eyes of my soul away from a biblical truth and towards the way that seems right to me, but in the end leads to death? Those aren't fun questions. They're not always pleasant. Because then we have to grapple. Well, something wrong with me? Am I worthy of love? Do I have enough? That's the whole purpose of the Christmas story. Because you are loved. You may not have enough, but there is someone who does. And to show you that he can be enough and is enough, he came with nothing. To give us everything. To give us a family, an eternal inheritance. To give us an unimaginable future that goes well beyond the material things of this life. Because Jesus has loved us so completely, because he sacrificed his life so he could have and hold us forever, because we were the joy that was set before him, that made him willing to come incarnate, to live a life of obedience, to endure the cross, because he treasures us as his share, as his inheritance, and his wealth. And we have the opportunity to love him in return. For we are his precious. The song says, you didn't want heaven without us. So you brought heaven down. For he and he alone is the true hidden treasure. We're selling everything we possess in order to buy the field which he has buried. And he and he alone is the valuable pearl. We're selling everything we have in order to gain him. But we do not have to dig up a field. We do not have to exhaust ourselves because he moved towards us. And knowing that Jesus loves me and knowing that I can love in return helps me love everyone else better in the way that they need to be loved. Quoting the famous basketball coach, John Wooden, I had a basketball coach, coach that always said, be quick, but never in a hurry. This quote is often used to convey the idea of maintaining a sense of urgency and purpose without sacrificing attention to detail or making careless mistakes. As the band comes forward and we be prepared to just sing one last song and maybe contemplate some of the questions that I've asked. May we be quick to recognize 
where our lesser loves have taken hold. And not in a hurry when circumstances or opportunities for those strongholds to be loosened come. For every desperate situation, moment of confusion, longing for another path, I wish there was another option. Lord, help me is an opportunity for us to turn to Jesus, to trust, and I think most of all, not simply do or contrive, but be loved and allow the love of Christ, His will and His way to lead, to loosen the strongholds in our heart. See, the strongholds being loosened are the one of the most loving things that Jesus can do for us. God chooses the stables of desperation as a birthplace of his overwhelming love. So will you let his love be birthed in you? Will you slow down And anyone who knows anything about kids know that it takes about 10 months for a child to be born. It's not a fast process. And so may you process, may you slow down, may you create some space to be unhurried, to allow his love to change and transform your heart, to receive his love so that we can love others well.